There are opinions about everything. If you're in any kind of a human organization, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a, a class that you're taking, whether it's around a, a business table where you're having a meeting, opinions abound. Usually there are, are more opinions in a room than there are people in the room. Sometimes Gail and I have different opinions on things. We had a different opinion on something the other day. A fly had entered our domain. And I have this, this style of, of taking flies out of my domain. I use bounty paper towels. Now, it is the quicker picker-upper, but you, you, what you need to know is it's also very effective at annihilating flies. What I do is I take a bunch of them. I don't like throw the roll at them, but I take a bunch of towels. I make it 58% wet. I have this little gauge in my head. I can make it 58% wet. And then I sneak up very slowly and stealthily from, the, from behind the fly. I know they have exceptional vision out in front, but I get in that one blind spot that they have. Uh, it was like that movie, Pitch Black, I think, with Vin Diesel. And you have to get like right in that blind spot, and then you slam down real fast. And I usually, I mean, you know, my, my batting percentage is some, something like 975. So, uh, so the other day, I'm doing this. I'm sneaking up, and Gail's watching me. She says, what are you doing? And I, I say, shh, shh, shh. And I, and I go for the fly, and I miss it. And she goes, that's not the way you get a fly. That's not the way you get a fly. You get a fly with a fly sweater. I said, no, 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 not a fly sweater. That, that, that's just too, too inhumane. You know, you're like smacking them. Sometimes you have like, you know, it's just, you don't even want to talk about it. She goes, no, no, fly sweater. She comes over, she gets, she just walks right up to the fly. She goes, wham, it's done. <laughs> this is like a parable of my marriage. So, uh, so we have different, different opinions. We also have different opinions. An opinion came up this morning. We're getting ready to, to come to church. And she said, uh, we've had Travis and, and Nina and the four girls staying with us all week long, all week long at the beach. And it has been chaos. Now, the word, the word delightful was sort of trying to make it through the, the, the fissures in my brain, but it didn't make it. Chaos jumped in ahead of it. And uh, it's, it's, been, it's been chaotically delightful, let's put it that way. And, and so she said, now, Nina and Travis, they want to go out to dinner tonight alone. And I said, why don't we, here's my opinion, why don't we go out together? And she looks at me and she says, then who will take care of the children? And I thought, I really don't care. <laughs> After the week that I've had, little Ruthie can take care of herself. She can take care of herself. You know, leave her a couple diapers on the floor. She's always on the floor anyway. She can't fall. She's already on the floor. She can't get hurt. Put the diapers on. It's, it's basically saying, look, life is hard, kid. You might as well get used to it right now. You know, stand on your own two feet. She's, she's almost doing that. She's almost like walking, and this would be good for her to be on her own tonight and, and learn how to walk. They can figure that out. Lots of opinions. Lots of opinions. And an opinion... A 5-4 opinion brings us to our discussion today. In 2011, same-sex marriage was legal in six states. In 2013, 17 states. Now, in 2015, legal in 50 states. Let me read to you from a book, if you want to go deep on the subject 
recommend this book to you by Kevin DeYoung. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? He writes, the debates about gender and sexuality are not going away. Whether you love the frenzied back and forth or more likely wish the whole big mess of controversy would magically disappear, that's just not the world we live in. The issues are too massive, the stakes too high, the feelings too intense for all this to slip silently into the night. The world and the church will keep arguing about homosexual behavior and same-sex marriage and whether Jesus would go to a same-sex wedding. Fair enough. We live in a free country, in the public square, which is not the same as the boundaries of church membership or confessional commitment. We should expect a wild and woolly exchange of ideas and arguments. But there's the rub. A rant is not an idea. And feeling hurt is not an argument. To be sure, how we make each other feel is not unimportant. But in our age of perpetual outrage, we must make clear that offendedness is not proof of the coherence or plausibility of any argument. Now is not the time for fuzzy thinking. Now is not the time to shy away from careful definitions. Now is not the time to let moods substitute for logic. These are difficult issues. These are personal issues. These are complicated issues. We cannot chart our ethical course by what feels better. We cannot build our theology based on what makes us look nicer. We cannot abdicate intellectual responsibility because smart people disagree. And we certainly cannot keep our Bibles closed. There are lots of issues involved in, in the discussion that we're about to enter today. And there are lots of questions. And I cannot answer all the questions today. But what I can do is I can tell you what the Supreme Court said and what they base their decision on, and I can tell you what the Bible says and what we as Christians can base our lives on. Some of the questions that linger in the air we'll have to, to leave for another day and time, and we can have that day and time. But today, I want to be clear about freedom. I want to be clear about autonomy. I want to be clear about the truth. Let's start with what did the Supreme Court say? Before addressing the principles and precedents that govern these cases, it is appropriate to note the history of the subject now before the court. From their beginning to their most recent page, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent importance of marriage. The lifelong union of a man and a woman always has promised nobility and dignity to all persons without regard to their station in life. Marriage is sacred to those who live by their religions and offers unique fulfillment to those who find meaning in the secular realm. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just the two persons. Rising from the most basic human needs, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. The centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers into relatives. I find the Supreme Court almost comedic, comedic at that point. Since the dawn of history, marriage has transformed strangers into relatives, binding families and societies together. Then they quote Confucius, 
and they quote Cicero, I'm bypassing those quotes, there are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say these references were based on the understanding that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. That history is the beginning of these cases. The respondents say it should be the end as well. To them, it would demean a timeless institution if the concept and lawful status of marriage were extended to two persons of the same sex. Marriage, in their view, is by its nature a gender differentiated union of man and woman. This view long has been held and continues to be held in good faith by reasonable and sincere people here and throughout the world. The petitioners acknowledge this history. The petitioners value the enduring importance of marriage. The petitioners seek marriage because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. And then there's a, a section B in the decision where they talk about how marriage in culture has evolved through centuries. And they talk about how arranged marriages really don't exist anymore and how women have gained legal rights in and of themselves and how that has, has changed marriage. They respond, these new insights have strengthened, not weakened the institution of marriage. Indeed, Changed understandings of marriage are characteristic of a nation where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations, often through perspectives that begin in pleas or protests and then are considered in the political sphere and the judicial process. And when they go where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations, that's where it starts to get fuzzy. Where do these new dimensions of freedom come from? How do we know that they're standing on firm ground? Where, where are we supposed to, to move now with these so-called new insights and new dimensions of freedom? So what the Supreme Court does at this point in order to find a, a foundation is they ground their decision in the 14th Amendment because all decisions have to be grounded on something. So here they go. Under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, no state shall, quote, deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then they state it this way. The fundamental liberties protected by this clause include most of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights. In addition, these liberties extend to certain personal choices central to individual dignity and autonomy, including intimate choices that define personal identity and beliefs. And so when they say including intimate choices, that's what they're saying they're going to do now. They are going to grant this personal choice on the 14th Amendment, this personal choice of intimacy that defines a person's identity and or beliefs. But there's a word here that's an interesting word that they use. Central to individual dignity and autonomy. Autonomy means self-law. And so it's basically saying you have a right to govern yourself in the larger sphere of society. There's only one problem with that. 
the span of history, and if you look at current events, autonomy doesn't work that well. We don't seem to be able to govern ourselves effectively. We, we seem to need a, a higher form of governance. And that's exactly where God comes in. He is the highest form of governance. He's given us laws from which we can derive a foundation upon which to build our lives that, that will be a strong foundation that will last throughout our lives that we can pass on from generation to generation. But when we take his law and we decide that we have an autonomy that subverts his law or skirts around his law or takes a shortcut through his law, we start to chip away at the very foundation that we need to build our lives on. The court itself said that they were grounding the decision on four principles, and I've summarized these principles. I tried to keep them as, as clear as the court had them, but just to make them a little bit tighter. Four principles and traditions demonstrate that the reasons marriage is fundamental under the Constitution apply with equal force to same-sex couples. In other words, here's why we're making this decision. Number one, the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent in the concept of individual autonomy. There's that word again. Number two, the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in its importance to committed individuals. Number three, marriage safeguards children and families. And they were very clear about this in their decision. And number four, marriage is a keystone of the nation's social order. In their syllabus on page five, they sum it up in this way. Respondents' argument that allowing same-sex couples to wed will harm marriage as an institution rests on a counterintuitive view of opposite-sex couples' decisions about marriage and parenthood. Who gets to decide what's counterintuitive and what's not? Who gets to, to put a judgment of counterintuitive reasoning upon a group of people, I must ask? Finally, the First Amendment ensures that religions, those who adhere to religious doctrines, and others have protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faiths. And so it basically says, within the context of your church, within the context of your, your faith, you do not have to be bound in any certain way by this decision, but within the larger context of the, of the society in which we live, this is the, the decision we're making as a Supreme Court, remembering that it is a five to four decision. One vote going the other way, and it would have just shifted entirely. One vote, five to four decision. This is a Christian message with a biblical focus, defending a traditional view of marriage. Three questions arise when we have a debate like this. What did God create? What do we owe to God? How do we deal with our brokenness? For the purposes of clarity, let's find out 
what did God create? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals, each a male and a female. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Literally, in Hebrew, the word means the side. And there's an, there's an ancient Hebrew story that says that, that God sort of cut the man in half and then fixed him up as the man and then made the woman. Took one of the man's ribs, his side, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's just like me, but she's not like me. She shall be called woman, Isha. Because the man was called Ish, Isha, Ish. Same, yet very, very different. For she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. And when the Bible talks about one flesh, it's always in the context of maleness and femaleness coming together. Let me talk to you a little bit about Jesus on freedom. John chapter 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And he was talking about a freedom that's different than a political freedom. That's different from even a, a governmental Supreme Court decision in the 21st century. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. that have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're, they're rooting their, their pushback in a political mindset. And, and watch what Jesus does. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. When you do what God has not wanted you to do, when you go in the directions that are hurtful to yourself and or others, you're just a slave to brokenness. You're a slave to something that is pulling you down. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. And then he punctuates his thought there with this. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so Jesus is always calling us to a spiritual intimacy. He's saying life must be rooted in that intimacy. It's an intimacy that transcends human relationship. It's an intimacy that transcends political institutions. It's an intimacy that is achieved when you connect your heart with his heart and he lives his life in you and through you. He is the vine. You are the branch. And it's something that the Bible is not going to cheapen. It's something that the Bible is not going to discount. It's the truth 
and it's what sets every human being free. Every man, every woman. That's the freedom that God offers to all of us in our brokenness. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. We'll look at verses 20 through 22, and then we'll jump down a little further in the chapter. For since... For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not Proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, when it says being filled with all unrighteousness, it means that human beings can be all about themselves. What's in this for me? What do I get out of this? How do I get over you? How do I push you down? How do I take what I want? That's unrighteousness. Righteousness is thinking the way God thinks, living the way God would have you to live, living the way Jesus lived when he was here. And so he's saying being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, do, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What Paul is saying is, we have this big problem. We are selfish and self-centered. We are broken. And in our brokenness, we miss the holy plan of God for our lives. He's trying to argue to avoid that. He's trying to argue to put God in the right place in your life and let everything fall into place for his honor and for his glory. The Holiness Code of Leviticus 18 and 19 states clearly that homosexual behavior is outside of God's plan and regarded as missing the mark of what God created, missing the mark of what was clear in Genesis. Romans 3.23 echoes that thought, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not like you can point your finger at somebody Jesus said, take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Look at yourself. Figure out where you're missing things. Figure out where your relationship with God through Christ needs to be more intimate, more responded to God's offer of a daily grace unto you and to live for a purpose that's higher than yourself all the time. In both Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus affirmed traditional marriage. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote, he wrote you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus quotes himself from Genesis chapter 2. The clarity is there. The wonder and the glory is there. But therefore God has joined together, Jesus said, let no man separate. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a very interesting passage. It speaks directly into this argument. Verses 9 through 11. And what I did was I pulled it in the Greek interlinear. So as I read, it might be a little choppy because I'm looking at two different lines, Greek words and English words. But I'll, I'll try to keep it as smooth as I can. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and that's where the Greek word is the word we get pornography from, pornos, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were guilty of these abominations. Some of you we're doing this stuff. And then there's this great word, but but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so what, what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I know all this stuff's going on. There's nothing that surprises me. The argument that we're having today, the debate that, that we're having today, has been argued and debated for thousands of years. And you look at the history, and you look at the writings, and it's all there, and there's always been this challenge. Are we going to do life the way we want to do life? Or are we going to do life the way God has asked us to do life, realizing that there are great challenges in doing life the way God wants us to do life. The word here, the word homosexual doesn't exist at this time in history. So what word is that that Paul's using in 1 Corinthians 6? It's this word. It's two words that were put together. Arsenokoites. Arsenokoites. It's the word men and the word beds. Men in beds. That's all they had. But that was enough for them to know you can't go there. You can't do that. It's not God's it's not God's desire. It's not what he created. God created something so much bigger. God created something that is far beyond our imagination. And it's not that we live in an autonomous society. It's that we live in a society that is still under God's call to holiness, God's call to what is sacred. We have to decide in our hearts how then shall we live? Did, did Jesus ever talk about homosexuality? People go, well, he never talked about it. Sure he did. Mark chapter 7. They're having this big argument about hand washing for ritual purity. And so it comes to the end of the argument. Jesus says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, 
that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And when Jesus used the word sexual immorality, it was again the word that we get pornography from, porneia. New Testament scholar James Edwards in his The Gospel According to Mark states it this way, porneia can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, heterosexual sin, heterosexual missing the mark, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. Jesus talked about it because he's God and he wants us to know what the right way to live is. Now, my friend and the founding and senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, Bill Hybels, at a meeting in February, told us that he is currently meeting with a, a group of gay Christians right after their Saturday night service because they came up to him after church and said, how come you never talk to us? And he had never really thought about the issue very deeply. So he started to meet with them. This is what he said. 100% of them discovered that they had no choice. 100% felt ashamed and tried to change. 100% considered suicide. 100% feel like they are born-again Christians with the Holy Spirit inside. And so where did he end up? Where did he go with this? He went to a place where I believe I can go too. I believe you can go there too. He went to this place. He says, we have unwavering theological convictions. Unwavering theological convictions. Biblical principles that are there that we can't change. And we must understand in the larger context of what God has created and what God has called us to do and to be. And then he says, we have Jesus' law of respecting persons. Jesus respected everybody. He loved everybody. The people that he, he argued with the most were the, the religious people that were all controlling and, and manipulative, but he got criticized for meeting with who? For meeting with sinners, people that were missing the mark big time. Jesus' law of respecting persons, this law relates to people who don't agree with our unwavering theological convictions, Heibel says, and I agree with him. So we can sit with anybody and listen. We can hear anybody out without even arguing back if we don't want to, but we want at some point for them to know these are the convictions upon which we're building our lives. This is what we believe is truth. This is what we, we believe is a, a higher level of law that all human beings are called to, and they were called to this from the beginning of time. You know, what God created, what do, we, what do we owe God? We owe God our lives. We owe God our lives in service according to what he requires. And we know all about laws and requirements of things. This is why Tom Brady is going to sit out four games. <laughs> why is he sitting out four games? He didn't obey the rules that were laid down by an authority that was over him. And we know how that works when we get pulled over 
by a state trooper unless we can sort of talk ourselves out of it. We know how it works. When we get a bill for taxes that we are delinquent for and we have to figure out how we're going to do that and we know how that works, it works the same way in God's kingdom. But in God's kingdom, God says, I love you. I love you. Just come the way you are and I will love you the way you are. And we can talk, and we can walk together, and we can be together. And I think the church should be a place where people come as they are, and we talk, and we listen, and we pray, and we do life together. But here's, here's what it comes down to at the very end of the discussion. Very, very important place for us to land today. The Bible's put it this way. I think this works for all of us in the church. You have two responses from the church. One we're calling side A and one we're calling side B. The side A church says, we are okay with, with flexible sexual morality and the LBGT agenda. We are okay with that. And some denominations make that choice and some individual churches make that choice in day-to-day practice and even in ordaining clergy. There's a side B church and that's where I am, and that's where the elders of this church are. Sibe Church says, we are okay with celibacy, with restraint, with discipline for heterosexuals and homosexuals because God has called us to a greater intimacy. Even though we live in a very sexually explicit culture, even though we live in a culture where you can hardly turn around without some manifestation of sexuality. We are called to a discipline. We are called to a sacredness for human life. We are called to a holiness. And so we are okay when people say, I know what I am and I know who, what I struggle with as a heterosexual or a homosexual. And I accept celibacy because I know I am called by God to a greater intimacy and intimacy with, with Jesus Christ. This is a Christian message with a biblical focus defending a traditional view of marriage. What did God create? He created a man and a woman and he called them to an intimacy with each other and to an intimacy with him and the intimacy with each other doesn't even really work unless the intimacy with him works. What do we owe God? We owe God our whole lives. We owe everything to the one who gave his life for us. How do we deal with our brokenness? We deal with our brokenness by not judging, by loving and listening and walking and, uh, and understanding. In Isaiah 66, 2, it says, to this one I will look. This is the one God says that I'm looking for, to the one who is humble, to the one who is contrite of heart, to the one who trembles at my word. A humility that understands I'm not God. I'm really not autonomous. Contriteness of heart means I know where I miss the mark. I know where that affects me and how it affects others and and it saddens me. Trembling at his word means to come in awe to God's word and to understand that sometimes it's explicit and hard and difficult because it's calling us all to a greater purpose and someday we'll walk into a kingdom that is glorious 
and we'll know this truth that has set us free in a whole new way. We've been in the, in the Psalms during this series, so let me close this with Psalm 90. Oh, teach us to live well. Teach us to live wisely and well. Come back, God. How long do we have to wait and treat your servants with kindness? Surprise us with love at daybreak. Then we'll skip and dance all day long. Make up for the bad times with some good times. We've seen enough evil to last a lifetime. Let your servants see what you're best at, the ways you rule and bless your children. And let the loving kindness of our Lord, our God, rest on us, confirming the work that we do. Oh, yes, affirm the work that we do. So if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. No matter what political decisions are made, no matter what government observations change, we live under the the love and grace and the rule of a God who loves us so much that he sent his son into the world to give his life for us, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Live your life knowing him deeply, intimately, serving him well, and knowing that you, because of his love and grace, are going to live forever. Dear Heavenly Father, allow us to to pass on the understanding of love and grace as we hold on to unwavering biblical principles. Allow us to know deeply your personal love for each and every one of us so that as we walk in relational intimacy with others, that your love shines through as we walk with others hand in hand down life's road of business and education and government uh, in every single way, Father, that, that people see Jesus Christ living in us and through us. And when we fall, Father, help us to do the diligent work to take the log out of our eye before we try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Father, we give you this time. Make it holy unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.